Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is one of the true lions of the business. He is uh, absolutely on anybody's Mount Rushmore for the 20th century into the 21st century uh, here in America, in our industry and globally. And I'm talking about the great Alan Rosenshine of BBDO fame, but so much more. So welcome, Alan. It's a pleasure to get a chance to see you and to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, Alan, I know you went to Columbia College way back when, mm -hmm. that you joined BBDO, give or take, five or six years after you graduated from school and began what is one of the most iconic careers anyone's ever had in our industry. But I couldn't find anything about where you were in between graduation and BBDO. Where were you those five years? Where'd you start out? Well, after graduating from uh, Columbia, I actually was in the class of 59, but I didn't complete my studies until 1960, barely, I might add. But in any event, um, uh, after that, I did, uh, my, I did six months of service in the, in the uh, Naval Air Reserve. Um, this was uh, in lieu of uh, getting drafted during the Vietnam Wars. And uh, after that, what I did was I uh, taught briefly at um, Brooklyn College School of General Studies, but teaching was not a career that I was uh, really interested in pursuing. It would have required me going to a graduate school and uh, having just gotten out of Columbia by the skin of my teeth, I figured this was not, ac academia was not for me. So I, uh, I, looked, for, I looked for a job that would, uh, that would help uh, have something to do with writing because what Columbia did teach me was um, how to write expositional copy, how to write expositionally uh, in general. And so I wound up at a small advertising agency, an industrial advertising agency. And I spent three years there before going to BBDO. At that agency, I never did a TV commercial. We basically did industrial catalogs or occasionally industrial ad, but uh, it was, a, it was a good break into the business. Fantastic. And Alan, you're one of the most revered creatives that our industry has ever produced. And uniquely, because not everyone has both skill sets, you were also a great business mind. As a young kid growing up, were you a creative kid? You know, were you an entrepreneurial kid? I know whatever modest degree of success I have, I've often attributed that to that I started working and learning, dealing with people when I was about 12 years old. Um, did you work as a kid? What, you know, take us back to early Allen, if you will. Well, early Allen is nothing much to brag about. I mean, I've, um, I was pretty athletically inclined. So I spent a lot of my time with my friends playing ball uh, after school. Uh, and um, I, did, I did work during the summers. Um, you know, as a waiter in, in summer camp and odd jobs, things of that sort. But um, I really had no, uh, honestly, no particular direction until uh, I got out of college and decided to pursue a, a career that would uh, allow me to make use of, uh, of what I learned in, in, in the ability to write and, uh, and to apply it to marketing. So uh, honestly, there's not a hell of a lot to talk about there. My father passed away when I was 11 from uh, leukemia. Mm. And um, 
basically my mother went back to work and uh, I basically uh, took care of the house. My brother, elder brother left home. He's seven years older than me and left home uh, um, just about at the time that, uh, that I started at Columbia. Mm. And so it was writing that really became your calling. How did you get the job at BBDO? Was there a job that you applied for? Well, after, after about two, two years at uh, the industrial agency, I realized that if I was going to stay in advertising, then I really needed to uh, get into consumer advertising as opposed to industrial. And um, so I started um, working up a, a book uh, pretty much on my own. I did take a course at the new school in TV commercials, which was taught by a, um, a vice president at, at, at Ted Bates. It was not the best. It was not the best grounding in creativity, in in TV advertising. But it was a, it was something, and it enabled me to understand the structure. And so I created a, as much of a book as I could, mostly speculative stuff, and started sending it around. Um, I got um, no response from anybody, for, but fortunately had a, a friend of the family who was the head of TV production at BBDO. So I called him and I said, look, you know, get, just get me an interview. And uh, that's all I would ask because I can't get through the door with, uh, with, my, with, with my experience. So he did. And the result was that I did get a job there. Maybe it was nepotistic, but I don't care. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, you know, that's that. Well, all that did was open the door. You still had to excel in the interview. I was particularly uh, pissed off at Doyle Dane Burnback uh, because uh, they not only didn't respond, um, they lost my uh, spec book for about six months. And uh, so I got my revenge and I bought them eventually. It's absolutely. All right. We will get to that. So one of the things that people talk about of, from that era of our industry was the training and that the way young people were onboarded. Today, we're in a different time where if we're even in the office, the emphasis on training is not as great as it once was. Can you talk about what it was like in those early days and how they brought you in and, and tried to help you be more successful right from go? Yeah, there was no formal training, but I was brought in at the level, of, you know, at a reasonably uh, appropriate level for my lack of experience. And I was uh, put to work on... Uh, the first account I worked on was DuPont packaging film. This is the stuff that, you know, the cellophane wraps and things of that sort. I, mean, I don't know why you were writing, why we were writing ads about that, but there they were. And in any event, I, I was brought along basically by um, them putting me in a position to do what I could do and then giving me opportunities as they came along to get involved in that what we called agency gangbangs at the time, you know, where everybody pitched in to try and find lines and themes. And I eventually came to the attention of Jim Jordan in one of those gangbangs when there was a, an all hands on deck coming up with theme lines for Pepsi-Cola. And I wrote out a bunch of theme lines that I thought were okay, maybe six or seven. And uh, he called me to his office and he said, you know, two of these are pretty good. Who do you work for? And I told him and he said, well, not anymore. And he put me in a consumer group. So that was, uh, as I said, not formal training, but brought along on the basis of what I could do at the time that I was given the chance to do it. Okay, that's a, that's a great answer. And so uh, Jim 
gravitating towards some of your writing, that began what would be, I think, one of the longest, most successful love affairs between an eventual leader of an agency and a company, in this case, Pepsi-Cola. Yes, I, uh, I didn't actually work on Pepsi-Cola at the time, but um, eventually uh, it became one of the clients that I spent most of my uh, time on. Pepsi-Cola, um, Gillette, um, Campbell's, a few others. And um, I remained close to Pepsi uh, right to the end of my career and even uh, after leaving, leaving the company, still stayed in touch with them. I would think that that was probably the company I was closest to. Um, uh, secondarily to them, I think uh, probably Gillette. Right, well, some of the most iconic work that we've ever seen. So you, you are writing, you're recognized as a young, talented kid by some of the big bosses and you start to move up the ladder pretty quick. Right. Did you continue on that copywriting path or did you start to dip into some of the other parts of the agency? Well, um, as a copywriter, I was um, probably, you know, I, I was pretty good at, I was pretty good at writing dialogue for TV commercials and I was pretty good at writing print. Um, the, breakthrough creative visual ideas, maybe a little less so. But at any event, um, what happened was that um, along the way, uh, as I got you know, promoted from copywriter to a supervisor to a, you know, associate creative director, et cetera, um, I, my interest was not simply in, tell me what kind of commercial they want, tell me what kind of ad they want. I was really interested in the why in the background, in the, in the marketing, in the, uh, in the strategic backdrop to why they wanna say what they wanna say. And the more I got involved with that, um, the, the more I realized that um, uh, my creativity uh, was much more as a critic, much more as someone who could look at something and, and analyze it from a strategic and a uh, executional perspective, as opposed to creating it myself. And so uh, interesting story is that Gillette at one point wanted me to become their account supervisor. I've never been so insulted in my life. And a creative guy being asked to be an account guy, but uh, I'm, I'm saying that facetiously. It, uh, right, it, right. It, came, it came from the point that the conversations I would have with, with Gillette were not strictly a, here's a great idea, here's a creative idea. It was um, much more on the, on the subject of strategy and the subject of, uh, of creative strategy as opposed to creative execution. And Alan, over time, you've been viewed as sort of the, one of the leading advocates who really understood the importance of building enduring brands, brands that would stand the test of time. Was that something that came just to you instinctually? Was that part of the culture at BBDO at the time? Because BBDO has done, to this day, has done tremendous job in not only attracting clients, but retaining them over the long term. Yeah, I think that um, I think that my association with branding really comes from what we were just talking about, and that is that you know branding is a strategic exercise. Yes, it ultimately it ultimately is executed in terms of uh, um, creative approaches to the to the uh, consumer, creative approaches to the. Uh, um, to the product or services um, constituencies, but uh, a brand a brand needs to be managed as a brand, and, and it has its own it has its own characteristics. And I found that 
to be strategically very, uh, very rewarding to, to deal with. And uh, I found I could have probably my greatest impact on clients' businesses by focusing on branding rather than focusing on creative executions, besides which I had creative people who were much better creative people than I was. I mean, Phil Dusenberry, I couldn't carry Phil Dusenberry's shoes as a creative, as a creative director. Well, uh, another great legend, but clearly, uh, you know, you're one of the ringleaders to say the very least. So well, you rise up the ladder pretty quick and uh, you're named chief creative in 1975, about 10 years after you started. Yeah, about in 75, I became uh, creative director of uh, I became the creative director of the New York agency, which was the headquarters agency. And um, how were you balancing that growth? And also you're, you know, you're starting to, you know, you're having a family, you're, you know, the hours are notoriously difficult and challenging, especially yeah. when you're looking for something new. How'd you balance all that as a young guy? Not too well. I mean, the family suffered a bit, I'm afraid maybe more than a bit. Um, my first marriage ended in divorce, but uh, amicably. And uh, in fact, uh, my ex-wife and I and, and my current wife remain friends to this day. But in any event, um, I had two sons with my first wife and I, when they were growing up, they didn't have enough of me. Uh, I, was not, uh, I was not a very present dad. But um, after the divorce, I really needed to spend more attention, pay more attention, and I did. And with my second wife, we've had two daughters, and uh, the family has uh, the family has survived my lack of attention uh, far better than I deserve. Well, it's a it's a very common scenario. Uh, it's very hard to balance all that. I guess we should jump to your uh, displeasure with DDB having lost your book way back when. <laughs> and uh, I don't know that we quite call it revenge. I guess we could, but- no, that, that was a facetious remark. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great story though. But tell us where the idea, because it really starts with you. I know you were in, if we're watching Hamilton here, and we remember that great line that Lin-Manuel wrote, the room where it happens. You were in the room where it happens and you were the first one in the door. Um, well, actually, let's, actually, let's hear the story right from you, Alan. Well, actually, the um, the idea of Omnicom, which I guess is what you're referring to, at, at, at that time, which was the mid '80s. I mean, the Sachis were buying everything in sight. BBDO had gone public; it was a public company, and we were looking for ways to grow, and uh, also were concerned about the fact that as a public company, we were uh, subject to uh, uh, subject to acquisition. Uh, I had become the head of BBDO in 1985, and uh, uh, the head of BBDO globally, such as it was globally at the time. And we were looking around for ways to um, expand our expand our reach, expand our growth, and actually at that time, you know, to uh, protect ourselves from from being acquired because we really didn't wish to be. Um, so. My um, international partner, the head of BBDO International, name of Billy Schultz, who was a 
came to BBDO as part of our German acquisition some years before, he and I were just chatting on the phone. And as it turned out, he was in the process of talking to John Bernbach um, about a possible merger between BBDO and DDB, just exploring, you know, and, and I was at the time talking to Keith about possibly uh, merging or acquiring um, Needham Harbor because that would have been a great fit with BBDO in that they were they were much stronger where we were weak and we we had strength where they were not and we were had separate you know headquarters in different cities so it was it, it would have been a good a good um, expansion and a good opportunity for them to expand with us but in any event Willie and I were talking about the progress of our respective uh, our respective conversations and I don't know whether he said it or whether I said it but. At one point, one of us said to the other, well, why don't we see if we can do a three-way deal? I mean, DDB has a great brand, but they have problems, and Needham is a great fit. And it, it went from there. Eight weeks later, there was Omnicom. That was a hell of an eight weeks, I'll tell you that. But uh, in any event, uh, it all worked out, as, as, uh, you know, as history has proved. And I think that the big breakthrough in the idea was to merge DDB and Needham and leave BBDO as it was, which accomplished getting BBDO off the public market, now making it a subsidiary of a much larger entity, Omnicom. And uh, each agency fulfilled in that merger some very strategic needs. For BBDO, it was to get off the public market. For Needham, it was to become a real global player. And for DDB, it was to really get out under uh, under some real problems that they had at the time financially. So it was a little bit of offense and a little bit of defense. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. But the thing was, above all, is that we shared a, a, an awful lot of common culture. Our belief in creativity, our belief that that was the, the foundation of, of an agency's business uh, and a commitment that that should continue. Um, so it, it was the fact that we shared we shared a, a cultural outlook and we, we felt comfortable with each other from the standpoint of what our objectives were and what our beliefs about the business were. And you mentioned uh, Keith's name, of course, has come up and you mentioned Phil Dusenberry, another iconic name in the creative arena. But that conglomeration of all three companies, you must have had an awfully lot of talented people under that roof at the same time. Absolutely. The DDB, despite their financial difficulties at the time, had tremendous talent, creative talent. Um, and, uh, and Keith's organization was a creatively oriented organization with really very good people. So um, managing and, and continuing um, and developing a creative reputation for Omnicom as a holding company for creative agencies um, was not, not so difficult. A lot of the logistics were difficult. A lot of the client relationships in the beginning were a little difficult in managing the, uh, in managing the conflicts, but um, we, didn't suffer, we didn't suffer too badly from conflicts uh, any more than was normally the case in a merger. And while the, the press referred to it as the big bang of the industry, how did the business press greet what you were doing? Forget about the trade press, but the general interest in the business press. Was it well-received? Yeah, it was, it was, it was well-received well because we were a counterpoint at, 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 to Saatchi. 
And Saatchi was, Saatchi was on a land grab. I mean, Saatchi, uh, <laughs> they were the Putins of the business at that time. They were buying anything and everything they could get a hold of. And they were trying to buy BBDO at the time as well. Um, but uh, the press greeted us as a sort of um, antithesis, if you will, to, to, uh, to Saatchi in that nobody made a dime on our merger in terms of the executives, except a few people in um, a few people in uh, Needham who were able to convert, you know, um, for some personal profit. But that was never that was never the issue. Um, nobody in BBDO made a dime on their shares and becoming Omnicom shares, and and the same is true basically for DDB, except for a couple pe couple of people who had contracts of change of ownership. Blah blah blah. But we we were, I think, um, while Saatchi may have had may have had a reputation um, for creativity, um, their, their basic reputation was size, get bigger, ownership, control, and our um, our culture was uh, collegial um, and and man manage manage our businesses to promote and continue. Uh, our creative reputation, and so we were we were quite, I think, uh, viewed by the business press as something different. Uh, uh, a number of a number of people in the press, I think, really referred to us referred to us as a uh, a merger with a meaning. Hmm. That, that's a, that's a great way to be described. So you you used the word culture a moment ago. BBDO's right. culture is so strong. Uh, exactly. So unique. Talk about the evolution of that culture and how during your lengthy tenure, which went all the way up till about 2006, so quite a lengthy tenure, but even to this very day, BBDO has its own unique culture. Yeah, I think that um, we were late coming to the international scene. Bruce Crawford, my predecessor as the head of BBDO, um, really helped develop uh, resources outside the United States, largely through uh, largely through buying, you know, uh, by buying um, equity in companies that we felt were consistent with our outlook, uh, our, our outlook that, you know, crea creativity is predominant. It is the, uh, it is the, the, you know, the foundation and the strength of what an agency brings to a party that a client cannot do for themselves, et cetera, et cetera. And we only um, we tried only to get involved with and buy and uh, buy equity in agencies that shared that. So we were building a culture um, as we built our international capabilities. When Bruce left and I took over in 1985, uh, we were still not competitive internationally. We still did not have the capacity to handle a major multinational client, and that was. Um, that was really the uh, the focal focal point of of, uh, of of my leadership, if you will, is that we had to reach the point where we could organize this, uh, you know, herding the cats uh, into a into a cohesive whole that could manage a multinational client who demanded coordination and uh, over over you know major major global geographies. And the breakthrough for us was in the early 1990s when we um, uh, when we became a major agency 
in, in competition for Mars. Um, and that's, a, that's an interesting story too, because Mars was not a creatively oriented company in terms of the work that they were doing. But there were some people in Mars who recognized that, and we had made contact with a number of people in Mars. And uh, at one point they invited us into a pitch with uh, two of their existing agencies to, to reevaluate their assignments and their businesses. I remember Phil and I sat down with a reel of Mars advertising and we, we were about 40 minutes worth of ad current advertising that they were doing in their various categories. And Phil just looked at me and he said, we can't work for these people. I said, what are you talking about? He said, we can't work for them. They will hate us and we will hate them. Look at the work that they do. I said, well, first of all, if we can't work for Mars, we're out of business. As a global company, if we cannot work for a company like Mars, we're not going to survive, number one. Number two is um, that's our challenge. Our challenge is to be their creative agency. Our challenge is to be a counterpoint to their, their other agencies who aren't providing them with great, great creative. And he said, okay, but it's not going to work. Well, it, it, has worked, it has worked famously, and we've won probably more, more awards for Mars than for Pepsi. In terms, of, in terms of creative output, largely because we were able to work with their American company who had a, um, a leader in Paul Michaels who, who really did want good commercials. He really did want to be known for good advertising. And within the Mars organization, he had a lot of uh, leeway to do, to do as he saw fit. In our first meeting with Mars, if I'm going on too much about it, just stop me. No, this is wonderful. In our first meeting with Mars, um, when uh, the Mars uh, owners, the, the brothers and the sister, uh, Forrest Mars, John Mars, and, uh, and their sister came to BBDO with an entourage, like 30 people, for the first review. And I remember showing them the storyboards for, um, for Snickers. And we, were, we had some great Snickers commercials and uh, we showed them the storyboards that the first work that we were doing for Snickers which was under the aegis of this fellow, Paul Michaels. And they looked at the work and this was a meeting that lasted over two days. They didn't say a word, not a word. Next morning they came back and they said, Alan, we were thinking about those commercials that you showed us and I've got to tell you, this was Forrest Mars talking. Um, they're the two worst commercials we've ever seen. Hama, hama, hama. I said, Forrest, I hope you understand they're in production as we talk. They have been approved. And he said, oh, no, I understand that. And Paul is entitled to do the commercials he wants to do, but we hate them. We won more, we won more awards with, uh, we won more awards for, uh, for Snickers and for M&Ms um, than probably any other brand except possibly Pepsi and maybe even more than Pepsi. And it, it, it was a great relationship and it grew and it grew and it grew and the people outside of the US and Mars said, we want some of that. And so Mars became uh, one of our biggest and, and best clients. And I loved working with them as, 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 as bizarre as they could be in their opinions because they were very independent people. They didn't give a damn about Wall Street. They didn't give a damn about what people thought about them but they did what they said they would do. And they told you what they thought. There was no bullshit and there was no um, alternative agendas. 
uh, and the management of uh, a top management of Mars. You know what they thought, they told you, they told you uh, how they felt and you went on from there. And so I really enjoyed working for them, but they could be pretty bizarre at times. But, but sounds like straight shooters. Absolutely, absolutely. Great story. So back then, what was the role of media in the mix? Then everything was together. Media was not the dominant force that it has become over time. Talk about the role of media back in those early days, both uh, clients that you're working on US only, but also global clients. Well, you know, the, the, the joke used to be that uh, in, all, in, in all pitches and presentations, media got the last 10 minutes if there were 10 minutes left. Um, but we all know that um, as, uh, as, the business, as the business changed, as the business progressed, um, media really became the, uh, the primary source of the agency's, of the agency's income. Um, I mean, it was always, it was always um, a, a key, a key uh, measurement uh, and you were key to the, to the media budgets, but um, the, the ability to, uh, to create things in media that would be income producing um, went way, way, way ahead of it, the ability to create things uh, creatively that would produce income. That was static. Media was not static. Media was growing and changing with technology. And as it did, media in the agency became not the last 10 minutes, but <laughs> a force in the agency that eventually required us to, to separate them, that they, they, you know, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't operate in the, uh, in the last 10 minutes syndrome, nor should they. I mean, I was a proponent of, of breaking it. I was not, was not popular, but I, was, I understood I'm, I'm, I was a proponent of that, that media should be separate from the agencies. We talked a lot about how media and, and creative were integrated, but that was largely, uh, that was largely, uh, you know, nonsense. So let's talk about that a little deeper. It's, it's such an interesting topic. And, and you also talked about how technology was starting to dictate change. And this was not modern day Silicon Valley technology, but the same premise of what we see today seems to have applied back then. Yeah, I would say so. I would say so. And I think that, you know, it, the changes in media were so uh, quick and so dramatic, and largely driven by technological capabilities. Um, I mean, the, the internet really changed everything and the ability of, of people to be sliced and diced in media and approached uh, much more singularly than as mass groups uh, changed everything. And it changed, and the technologies changed the ways it would be. And ultimately, it's what, it's what convinced me it was time to find a successor because it was getting way ahead of me. I mean, I was in my 60s by, by the time this stuff was really cranking. And uh, frankly, um, uh, I felt that BBDL needed somebody uh, younger who was born and bred in this media milieu, which I was not. I mean, I could, I, I could always make a buck on branding because that still was relevant, but um, I couldn't talk the media game the way it needed to be, the way it needed to be brought to clients. So uh, uh, I started looking for a successor. All right, before we get to uh, that part of your career, 
you, you said you were a big advocate for the separation of creative and media, that it was something that had to be done at that time. Why? Well, because I think it goes back to the syndrome of, um, you know, media got the last 10 minutes if there were 10 minutes left in the presentation, because um, the, kind of, the kind of mindset that it took to be, um, to be successful in media was very, very different from the kind of mindset that it took to, uh, to develop a branding and, 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 and communications strategy in terms of the content, okay? Media is not the content, and I've never believed, I've never believed in McLuhan and that media was the message. Uh, the message and the media are two different things. And uh, they, they always were, in my view, and, and they behaved that way. And that's why the separation was, was I think, uh, beneficial. Uh, and I wasn't a big advocate of it. As, 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 the, as the, um, the dialogue progressed, I realized that um, I should be on the side of separation because that just made more sense. They're two very different mindsets. Uh, you put, you put, a, you put a, a media guru and a creative guru in the same room, and you got a lot of silence. So today, some of those walls are starting to break down. And yeah. I you know a number of creative shops that often will build their own in-house media team and, you know, don't tell this one we're doing that, but that's what the client wants. And it seems like it's going back the other way. Do you, observationally, does that surprise you? Is that a natural evolution? Well, it's going back the other way because um, things have become much more fractionated. I mean, uh, in let's say the 80s, 90s, up, up until about the turn of the centuries, I mean, the marketing communications landscape was pretty much still dominated by big companies. I mean, Omnicom, and Omnicom properties, BBDO, DDB Needham, et cetera, um, was being filled out, not with more and more agencies, traditional agencies, but more and more marketing communications, smaller and smaller marketing communications companies. The business uh, really became, um, as technology, as technology made it possible to reach consumers in much more, um, and much more appropriate or much more channeled to a consumer's um, um, existence uh, and beliefs. And the slicing and dicing also created many, many more companies who are specializing in this, specializing in that. And Omnicom grew not by buying more agencies. After TBWA, I don't think there was a major you know, agency acquisition. Um, by buying literally hundreds of these companies and, um, and, and providing them with resources so that they could pursue their slice of the market. So the market has just been so sliced up. I mean, we used to talk about fractionization of, of magazines and uh, back, back, in the, back in the day, but it's nothing compared to the way it is now in terms of companies that are specializing in, you know, in, in, in much smaller segments of the market, but able to provide 
much more targeted work right. because right. of the technologies involved. Now, I don't know, you know, uh, the result as far as broadcast has been concerned is that, and here the, uh, the crotchety old fart emerges. I mean, I watch television commercials. I don't know what the hell they're talking about. And I don't think that's just totally my ignorance. I think it's the fact that um, the, the, the attention, the, the, the thrust is now get attention as opposed to build a brand. Right. Right. So, and I think that, I think that has changed the business so dramatically that, um, I mean, there's no way I could function in it. I mean, <laughs> there's no way I could function. And I, and I realized that there was no way I could lead BBDO successfully going forward be, uh, when, I, when I was in my mid sixties, because uh, the technologies were, I, I didn't grow up with them. They were not innate in my, in my they weren't in my blood. And uh, uh, anything that I had to talk about, I had to learn. Right. Right. I, I was amazed because a friend of mine uh, retired recently, but was a pretty senior at that Omnicom, the diversified agency services group. And I was amazed at how big that was as part of the overall Omnicom, you know, makeup. Well, <laughs> when Omnicom was formed, I don't know, the three agencies were probably 60, 70 percent of the, of the revenue. And BBDO was probably half of that. Now, I mean, you know, if BBDO is 10% of Omnicom's revenue, I would be shocked. Amazing. I don't know the, I don't know the numbers because yeah. I don't see them anymore. No, the, point, the point is certainly valid. So we can't talk to you and someone who's been involved in some of the most brilliant creative work. Um, and I loved your book uh, that uh, you wrote, uh, Funny Business. I thought it was so, so full of so many wonderful stories. There must be some favorites, Alan, when you reflect back on some of the work and some of the campaigns. Uh, are there ones that you look back more fondly on than others or a favorite or two? Or, Alan, answer the other way, something that you thought would really hit that didn't. Well, I have always answered questions about what my favorite advertising was by, by saying that you're asking me to make Sophie's choice. Um, I, I can't I can't choose between my children. Um, and, and it certainly um, is not something that the head of an agency or even ex-head of an agency should be talking about who their favorite clients or their favorite advertising was, because it's impossible to do that without insulting everybody else. But um, I think that overall, the greatest impact um, that I was a party to in terms of uh, affecting a major client's major business. I'll, I'll, I'll put it that way, as opposed to favorite creative or favorite commercials or favorite- Very fair, very fair. Favorite people. The, uh, were certainly um, Pepsi and Gillette, which is where I spent. And it wasn't because I was spending my time on it. It was because we were having the greatest I think impact uh, on on their marketing communications, on how on their brand building, on how they related to their customers in the competitive sets that they were in, um, and that reflected itself in the work. But from the standpoint of where um, I got my kicks, it was in helping 
companies um, assess their brands on a competitive basis in, 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 and, and, and how they use marketing communications. I mean, I had, I had a, an awful lot of um, uh, good relationships and good times with a company that isn't known for its advertising at all and, and did very little of it. But I, I worked with one of their CEOs on the whole concept of branding and he was very interested in it. And he had me come down and give talks to their people now, I must say that you know, it didn't revolutionize the company and it didn't have a major impact on them, but it was the kind of work that I enjoyed most doing. Right. That company, I don't mind saying, that company was Armstrong, which was, as I say, it was not a major advertiser. Um, and, it, and, it really was, and it really was much more transactional than, than brand-oriented, but they had one CEO who was very responsive to the concept that Armstrong was a brand, could be a brand, and, and if it were built as a brand, could reflect on all of their work. And he bought into that, but not a lot came of it. But nevertheless, that's the kind of things that, um, that I enjoyed doing most. And the ones where, I, where we had the most success and the most real impact in terms of how the marketing communications of these clients were executed, uh, that I were involved in were Pepsi and Gillette. Right, two, two fantastic. I mean, the the to this day, I think the resonance of what you and your team created with the Pepsi generation, what you created with Gillette, and the best a man can get. These are they really manifest that notion of building brands that endure over time. Yeah, and I, I don't think that brand building in that sense any exists anymore. I don't think people understand it. Yeah. I really don't. I mean, they talk about brands, but it isn't, it isn't the way brands, it isn't the, what, what brands used to be or, or how they used to function or how they could contribute. And I think that's largely a function of the economics um, created by the end of new technologies. Uh, brand building is an investment. It's a long-term investment. It's not, it's not uh, you know, you don't get an ROI in, in 90 days. Right. And um I think that the whole business has, has, has been forced by the technological changes to adapt itself to uh, adapt itself to these uh, to, to, to new media. I mean, uh, to talk about eyeballs, how many eyeballs you got, how many clicks you got, that's not brand building. Right. No, very true. So one of the other great uh, hallmarks of your career is the work that you did with the partnership. And uh, Steve Passer was an old buddy of mine. And when we launched Advertising Week in 2004, um, we spent about 75% of our budget on uh, some exhibits that we did in Vanderbilt Hall at Grand Central Terminal. And one of them was celebrating, then it was the 25th anniversary of the partnership. Then it was called Partnership for Drug-Free America. Could we talk about that? Because you've helped so many sure. people and it's such a, a vital organization and the Ad Council certainly gets a tremendous amount of public credit and recognition and is probably more visible to more people. Right. But the work that the partnership does is just as vital, just as impactful. And you played a seminal role in that. Yeah, I was in, in, invited to be one of the uh, founding you know, agency or founding people involved. Uh, this was back in 1986, 
that we started talking about it. And it was, Luhagopian was uh, kind of bringing us together. He was the head of uh, Lennon Newell at the time, I think was the name of the agency. And um, the idea, the notion of it was very simple. It was if we could sell people on things, why can't we unsell people on things? And it was an immediate, it was originally called the Advertising Media Partnership for a Drug-Free America. And the idea was that agencies would voluntarily do creative work that would quote, unsell drugs. Um, so I was in an, uh, uh, as one of the founders of, of the partnership. And I remember it was also the year that I became the head of BBDO. And I remember talking to Tom Dillon, who was a, a prior head of BBDO. And, I said to him, should I get involved in this? I mean, I've just taken over as Bruce's successor in BBDO. I mean, do I have time for this? Should I be doing it? And he told me something very interesting. He said, yes, you should. You should get involved in it. And um, it, will be, it will be a great um, protector for you. I said, what do you mean? He said, because you can tell anybody else who asks you to get involved in something that you're involved in this partnership and that you don't have the time. And that will make it believable. Uh, okay, that was kind of cynical, but it was funny. And I've been involved with it since its inception in 1980. I'm still involved with it because it, the partnership has merged with what was called CASA and is now called the uh, Partnership to End Addiction. And it's a much, it's part of a much larger organization. And, um, but over the years, uh, before the merger, the, the partnership had specialized, obviously, in marketing communications and advertising against drugs. And that's where it kind of made its bones. And that was the idea of it, is that um, we, could, we could persuade through advertising, uh, create, a, uh, create the, the negative perceptions that were necessary to have an impact. Frankly, um, I, don't think, I don't think in any broad sense of, uh, of, of uh, metrics, it didn't work, that it worked, it didn't work. But it, it, it really created awarenesses in a lot of constituencies that were important. Did we significantly reduce drugs? Obviously not. Um, did we significantly impact young people, which became our, our basic thrust? Well, who knows how many are not on drugs as a result? But now we focus largely on helping families whose kids are in trouble. Uh, in other words, we've moved from prevention to, um, you know, uh, to helping families that, um, uh, whose kids are in trouble. And I think that that probably is a more realistic um, uh, and a more effective way to go than, than quote, advertising. But right. it was a very unique notion back when we when we did it, and it did have, and it did create a lot of awareness about the problem. I don't know how much of it it solved. Well, but being able to impact positively on lives of people who have severe severe right. challenges, you know, I mean, that's where the rubber meets the road, and you know, where we're able to do that for someone, then we've done something meaningful. Oh, absolutely. But as I say, as we moved from, let's say, prevention to uh, to treatment which is where we are now. We don't provide treatment, but we work with families so they can get the treatment right. that their kids need um, is probably uh, at the end of the day, more effective in, in saving more kids 
from the scourge of addiction than the advertising was, but nevertheless, the advertising did have a very positive effect in terms of raising the awareness of, of the problem and raising and raising uh, um, both governmental, governmental and, uh, and corporate interest in it. Great. Well, Alan, this was such a joy to talk to you. I, I can't thank you enough for doing it. And you had some fantastic stories. Thanks so much, Alan. Stay well. You too. Thank you very much. I appreciate the chance to talk with you, Matt. So much great Advertising Week content, so little time. Snackable AI is now helping you navigate podcasts like this one, event sessions, and other content with chapters, topic tags, and more. Find the insights that matter to you faster than ever before. Learn more at snackable.ai.